Podcast episode 255. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back again. And man, what a year so far. It's June. It somehow feels like it can't be June already. And simultaneously, how is it only June? I don't know how those two things can coexist at the same time in my head, yet they do. And here we all are, just trying to figure it out. Where do we go from here? What do we do next? What's going on with this virus? What's going on with the cops? What's going on with racism in this country? What's going on with our economy? It is impossible to have solid answers to any of those questions. I certainly don't have them. I'm guessing that you don't, and neither does my guest. But I would say, in times like this, if we can take a step back, if we can try and look at the whole picture, if we can try and piece things together, if we can provide, and this is important, context then maybe we'll set ourselves on a path that's meaningful, fulfilling, and advances the causes we care about in a material way. Now, my guest this week is Dr. Lawrence Grossberg, who asked me to call him Larry after I called him Dr. Grossberg too many times. Sorry, that's an old grad school rhythm. When I think about one of my professors from my alma mater, the idea of calling him Carl is impossible to me. He will always be Dr. Burkhart or Dr. B. In this case, it was tough to call him Larry, but I did. Dr. Grossberg is co-director of the University Program in Cultural Studies, Morris Davis Distinguished Professor, Distinguished Adjunct Professor of American Studies at the University of North Carolina. Now, how do I know him? Why do I care about him? Two important questions. One, I didn't know him until I reached out to him via email and pitched him on the idea of being on this show. The reason I care about him is because in 2004, 2005, and 2006, I read a lot of his work. And one of his papers called Another Boring Day in Paradise, formed the foundation of my master's thesis. And two episodes ago, I was talking to Tom Bryan, and I mentioned my master's thesis. I hadn't thought about it in a while, but I pulled it off the shelf. I looked at it, and I go, you know what? I'll bet Dr. Grossberg is still lecturing. I'll bet he's still writing. I'll bet he is still just as vibrant as he was when I was reading him 15 years ago. And sure enough, he is. Now, this is not exactly the conversation that I thought I was going to have. I figured we'd talk about music. I figured we'd talk about cultural theory. And we do some of that. We do that a little bit. We talk about his fascinating journey in being one of the first people in all of academia to study popular music and rock and roll. And how he had to build constructs and frames and theory around popular music. Because no one else was doing it. It was dismissed. It was viewed as trivial. And so that's kind of where we start, because that's obviously my entry point into him. But as we start talking about his scholarship today, and he resists that word, he doesn't think of himself as a scholar. He thinks of himself as a lecturer, as an intellectual, and an academic, but not a scholar. Okay, fair enough. We end up talking about the issues of the day. We talk about the rise of conservatism and where that originated in the 60s, how it evolved through the 80s, and what it looks like today, and how President Trump is really changing things in terms of modern conservatism. We also talk about the liberal left and its many failings, why that is. We talk about why binaries are so limiting, and why the use of binaries is such a flawed way of viewing the world. Now, as you might imagine, 
Someone who started as a professor in 1975 certainly has no shortage of things to say. And by and large, I kind of get out of the way. I'm mostly interested in listening, because I think in this particular cultural moment, we've got a lot of people talking, and not nearly as many people listening. And I find if you ask the right questions, you will get fascinating things in return. And so in this case, I asked a few questions to Dr. Grossberg, and he answered extensively. Do I agree with everything he said? Of course not. That would be boring. That would be ridiculous. Can you imagine two people agreeing on every single thing? But do I admire his approach? Do I admire his thoughtfulness? Do I admire his candor? Of course. Those are three things I value in any person. And Dr. Grossberg, sorry, and Larry has them in spades. I've seen a number of people share some controversial videos and controversial pieces on Facebook and other social media platforms. I'm trying to expose myself to as many of them as possible. Whether I agree with them or not is immaterial. But if you are not at least engaging with viewpoints that you disagree with, then you are doing yourself a disservice. And it's funny, in this chat, Larry says people ask him, I don't know, frequently, at least semi-regularly, are you a Marxist? And his answer to that is fascinating. He also tells me that he frequently enjoys reading conservative magazines more than he does liberal ones. He goes into why. I'm not going to spoil any of this for you because I think there is value in the conversation that we are having. Now, I started off this intro by saying, I don't think any of us have the answers to the questions that are plaguing us right now about disease, about racism, about the role of police, about our economy. And I bring that up because frequently we are presented with but two options to choose from. And again, that, I think, is doing a disservice for all of us. Instead, the acquisition of knowledge is asking a series of questions, listening, and being willing to have your beliefs challenged. So, in the spirit of everything going on, in the spirit of uncertainty that we all find ourselves in, I bring you this episode, one I am enormously proud of, with a guest that I deeply admire, and I'm thrilled I actually got to spend an hour with him. I didn't know if that would ever happen back when I wrote my thesis, but now that it has, man, what a thrill. Just a couple of quick plugs before we get going in earnest here. One, if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcatcher, please hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes will come directly to you. You won't even have to listen to any of my hype. They'll just get delivered right to you on Wednesdays, which is when new episodes go up. If you'd be so kind as to leave us a rating, leave us a review, that bumps us up in the algorithm. Again, how? I don't know. Nor do I especially care. I probably should care more, considering I produce podcasts for a living, but... Having more ratings, having more reviews, having more subscriptions, those are all great ways of supporting the John of All Trades podcast. Additionally, you can find every single one of my 250-plus episodes in the archive on johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N-of-all-trades.us. I've been at this for more than six years. I've had something like 10 days worth of conversations. You're bound to find something you like. Go and check out the back catalog. It's all there. Now then. Let's get to this episode. Number 255 is with Dr. Lawrence Grossberg. He is co-director of the University Program in Cultural Studies at University of North Carolina. One of his essays is the foundation of my thesis, and this episode is jam-packed with insights, questions, observations, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Episode 255 with Dr. Lawrence Grossberg starts right now. <laughs> People are not used to admitting and coping with the levels of anxiety and fear that they are now having to cope with. Uh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, there has been for decades uh, a kind of um, crisis 
of anxiety disorders, mainly among young people in this country. But I think the level and the dispersion and the constancy of anxiety and uncertainty, we just, we've not taught people how to cope with these things. No, as you say, there's no escape. Right. It, it's it's a constant barrage. And the fact that we don't have any leisure activities right now either. There's no concerts. There's no ball games. There, there's not new things happening. So if you try to escape into social media or watching the news, it's a reminder of exactly right. what we're doing. And it all feels the same. Like you can't just escape and watch, you know, a, a, an afternoon baseball game on TV. Right. So, thank God for music. Thank God for music. And that's funny. That's a perfect segue into talking about what we're going to talk about because this is Dr. Lawrence Grossberg, UNC Chapel Hill. And let me get your exact title right. You are co-director of the University Program in Cultural Studies, Morris Davis Distinguished Professor and Distinguished Adjunct Professor of American Studies. And also, on a personal note, uh, one of your pieces of scholarship kind of was one of the foundations of my master's thesis. So... I was, rem- <laughs> I was reminded of my master's thesis in one of the recent interviews I did, and I go, you know what? I'll bet Dr. Grossberg is still kicking, and I promise from here on out to call you Larry. But I, I was looking at that, and I go, yep, let's, uh, let's look it up. Let's, let's send a pitch. And so you were very gracious. You, you responded to me right away, and I'm thrilled to have you here. Well, I appreciate the invitation. I'm, as I said, I'm not sure I'm all that interesting, but I'll try my best. Well, <laughs> if you if you go online and look up your CV, I would argue that you are extremely interesting, and especially if you're interested in music or cultural studies or you know anything of that sort of ilk that comes out of a liberal arts background. I reread your article that I used as the basis of my my thesis. It's called "Another Boring Day in Paradise: Rock and Roll and the Empowerment of Everyday Life." And as I was rereading it, man, it was like pure catnip. <laughs> Because I thought, oh, right, this is why th- this really kicked me off in doing my thesis. Which, well, what was your thesis? So <laughs> I have it here. I found it on the shelf. And it's called yeah. Pacifist Resistance or Pacifist Rhetoric. Wow. Constitutive Audiences and Identity Construction in Rise Against and Yellow Card. Only academics could think of an, a, a <laughs> title like that. Yeah, that, that one flies right off the shelves, don't it? As I reread it, I go, wow, that is way too many words. Good grief. But essentially what I did is I took the, that paper and I combined it with a theory from Maurice Charlande, the, the people Quebecois, about constitutive rhetoric. And right. I thought about the ways in which two bands could ostensibly be punk rock and be so wildly different in their ideology and in, his, in their aesthetic and rereading your paper, I, I took so many notes. It felt like I was back in grad school. So when I say it was like catnip, I go, wow, I haven't got to exercise these rhythms in a very long time. <laughs> this is all a long way of saying I deeply admire your scholarship and I appreciate what you do just right up front. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and so I'm curious, given that your email handle is still Doc Rock um, at whatever the rest of the extension is for UNC, how much are you still engaging with rock and roll? How, is that still a primary part of your scholarship, or have you moved on to other things? Well, first let me say, and maybe we can come back and talk about this more, is I certainly, I've never thought of myself as a scholar. Oh, interesting. Uh, I'm not a scholar of popular music, or, you know, more recently in the past decade, I've been 
or more I've been writing about political culture. I don't think of myself as a scholar. I think of myself as an intellectual and a teacher. But we can come back to that. Let's talk about your question. Sure. Uh, the answer in, is in short. The short answer is, well, I still love and listen to popular music. I traditionally have not been someone who listens to old music. I like to keep up with uh, music today. I think there has been and always is a lot of great music being made. You're uh, a man after my own it. heart in that in that regard. I, I will admit that in the past, you know, few years, I have been listening more and more to old folk music and protest music, wishing there were more of that today. Agreed. I don't write about popular music anymore, and I don't teach it. And I could let me tell you why. The, the focus of my study, my work, my writing was never the music itself. I got interested in popular music, uh, apart from the fact that I, I was a great fan. And, you know, like so many people who grew up in the 60s when I did, the music was probably more important to me than any other aspect of my life. But what I was really interested in was two events that came together. One was a teaching event. I started teaching popular, well, you know, what was called mass media. <laughs> but for me, it was about popular culture. And this was in the mid-70s, I guess. And I found that I couldn't use any examples that the class shared. I, I would pick movies and start by assuming that they'd all seen them. And, of course, half the class hadn't. And, right. Uh, so, I mean, we didn't. We did have things like we would today, you know, with Star Trek or Star Wars movies or some of the youth-oriented movies. And the same was true of television. The one thing I found that they all knew and resonated with was the music. So when I tried to start teaching about how you might think about popular culture and its place in our society and its repercussions and determinations, I gravitated to the music because it was what, you know, you have a limited time in a classroom and it was easier to use examples that they knew and examples that I could play in class quickly. Right. But the other thing was what I was really interested in was trying to think about what was going on in the 1960s. Now, please remember, I was writing my dissertation in the early you know, in, in 73, 74, 75, I was trying to understand what had happened in the 60s and what, you know, what came to be called the movement of movements or sometimes the counterculture. Uh, right. I wanted to know what was going on. What was it politically, socially, culturally? What were the effects? What were the determinations? And in particular, I wanted to, it became clear to me that the music was central to it. So I wanted to figure out why did the music matter? How did it matter? What was it doing for this movement? But in order to do that, I had to be able to figure out how to talk about music. Because in fact, at that time, you know, other than, I mean, I could name them, you know, there were some great rock critics, especially people like Real Marcus. Oh, God. And, and there was, 
and there were other great critics like Bob Criscow and Lester Bangs, etc. The only real academic writing about popular music at the time was a British sociologist named Simon Frith, whom I later became very good friends with. Also cited in my thesis. <laughs> and, you know, I realized people didn't talk about popular music. It was no music department in the country seemed interested in it. There was very little. There was some work on country music, you know, and there was work on folk music, but they focused on it in a way that juxtaposed them to the mass media commercialized popular music that was rock and roll or whatever you want to call it. Right. So I started to try to figure out how to talk about music and how to write about music. But I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to become a scholar of popular music. I was trying to do what I think cultural studies always does, which is to understand a context. Yes. For me, the context was the movement of movements of the nine and the larger context of the 1960s. And my way in to that context was through music, which means meant I needed to develop a relatively sophisticated set of theoretical concepts and descriptive tools that would enable me to begin to describe it. Well, it's it's interesting to me at hearing you describe this because it reminds me of something I frequently have to do, which is, or not not so much anymore, but in my time when I was pursuing my master's, some people would, would be like, Oh, you have to watch a TV show and write a paper about it? That sounds really easy and really, you know, lame. And I go, look, if, if you can understand the, the things that, that we all consume with some level of nuance and depth and set context for why things like this exist, you will understand the entire world. You will understand politics. You will understand, better understand people. You will better understand their motivations. You will better understand the things that are both acting upon us and the things upon which we are acting. And so learning how to write about music when there was no template set, you know, I, I wonder, given that you are still in this position today, you know, I, I see high schools recognizing esports as part of their athletic programs. And part of me is reactionary about that because I go, that doesn't feel right to me. But I go, just because it doesn't make sense to me doesn't mean it's wrong. And so I'm curious, you know, in your position as, as pop, uh, as, you know, studying this area of study, what, what are some of the things that you're seeing emerging similar to the time when you got into popular music and there was no such field of study? Well, so let me back up a bit and say, on the one hand, you're right. When I started to write about popular music, the head of my department, my dean, they all told me I couldn't do it. Right. That I wasn't serious, that I wouldn't get tenure, that no one would publish me. Uh, I taught a course on cultures of popular music, which became very popular. Obviously. I'll bet. <laughs> and um, I had to write a 20-page justification to the dean for why popular music should be a subject in university. What, what year was this? This was 1976. Man. And I did, and the dean responded and said, well, you've made a convincing case and popular music, okay, we'll, we'll 
allow it to be taught, but you shouldn't teach it because you're too much of a fan. <laughs> to which I fortunately had the good sense of replying, well, I will accept that if you will allow that no one can teach Shakespeare if they're a big fan of Shakespeare. <laughs> but, well played. But the serious point I wanted to make was, you see, because I was interested in the context, it is one of the peculiarities of cultural studies that it doesn't think in terms of generalities. It thinks in terms of contexts, what we tend to call conjunctures or specific historical moments. You know, Stuart Hall, who is one of the founding figures of cultural oh. studies and, and my teacher. A, 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 um, a, a giant in the field. Just yeah. spectacular. Um, when he wrote about race, he would always say, the people of the U.S. don't understand what I'm doing because they think I'm offering a theory of race. And I'm not. I'm offering a theory of a particular society, in his case, British society, that is raced. Right? And I'm asking how race, how you have to conceptualize race as it exists in that context. So, right. I, you know, I develop what I look back on now and think were some sophisticated theories about how to think about popular music. But those theories were developed for that context. So, you know, what happened to me was somewhere in the 19th, 1990s, a friend asked me to write an essay about changes in popular music. And I began to kind of try to do some research. And I realized that the whole context has changed. You know, when I was writing about popular music, being young, which is obviously was, and, and maybe in some ways still is, but not in the same ways, being young was a good thing. When I went out and started talking to kids in the 1990s, they all said to me, you don't understand us because you think being young is good. And we think being young sucks. Right? Wow. And I began to realize, you know, I ended up writing a book, the first half of which is was about how badly the U, how the U.S. had gone from a society in the 50s and 60s that treated its children probably too well Hmm, perhaps, a society yeah. in the 90s that treated its children like criminals, prisoners, <laughs> you know, and a threat. Right. And I suddenly realized that I couldn't write about music because I didn't understand the context. Now, there were other changes, you know, again, in the 60s, if you were writing about popular music, you were writing about audiences that really had no alternatives. There was no television for kids. For right. young people, for adolescents, you know, until Beverly Hills 90210, not particularly good show, but until that show realized that there was an audience for television for adolescents and young adults, there was no television. There was very little film for kids. We had music. Right. By the 1990s, young people have a very different media ecology. You know, what I realized was I would have to start over again. <laughs> right. I would have to re and I would have to invent different concept concepts and different mm. strategies to understand how the music worked. And by then I thought, well, I'm too old to start over again. 
Well, um, I, I, I would say I agree with you, but only to a point in that the, the article that I cited, you know, Another Boring Day in Paradise, was written in January or published anyway in January of 1984. And yet many of the constructs were still applicable when I wrote my thesis in 2005. And so, I mean, that's 20 years removed. And I mean, that not, not to belabor this with too much, you know, process in terms of academia, but that's why you do a liter- literature review. You know, there, there are lots and lots of things. I can't remember what year Lipstick Traces was written, but I, I cited that as well because it provides historical context to, into the world of punk rock. And so as I'm writing about punk rock, if you're not paying heed to those things that came, you can't do the important work that comes after the fact. So, I mean, needing to invent an entirely new system makes sense to me, but that's not to discount the work that came before it, which yes. which was situated in its own time and space, but still applies in a lot of ways to yeah, contemporary. I, I probably I exaggerate by saying I would have had to have invented a whole new system. There are certain arguments I made and certain concepts I introduced. You know, my argument that music, popular music worked affectively, which when I was making it was a fairly radical new argument. It's not like today where we have affect studies. There there were very few people, Eve Sedgwick and a couple of others, writing about affect in different contexts. I think that's true. Music still works affectively. Well, uh, I think there are still elements of my, what I argued that are true, and I think there are places within the youth culture today or within the broader culture today where my descriptions of how music matters and what its effects are are still accurate. Agreed. And, and I think about even something like, uh, there's a passage in there where you say, to be effective, it must constantly deny its own significance. Right. And so that reminds me of something John Stewart used to do really, really effectively on The Daily Show, where he's like, look, this is, this is a comedy show where, you know, I'll, I'll make fun of farts. Yet, one of the most effective political commentators out there, because there's, there's almost a, a veil in front of him that, that he can, that he can enact and say, this is just a comedy show. And so to do that, you subvert expectations and you can do real work in that way. Right. Right. Because I think a lot, a a large part of the politics of popular music and other aspects of, I don't know what to call it these days, but we're used (laughs) to youth culture. Right. Um, A lot of those politics were defined not by explicit politics in the sense that we might talk about issues of social justice or economic justice, they were defined by a politics of lifestyle, right? politics of seriousness. You know, I mean, it was a politics to say fun matters. <laughs> that itself is a political gesture, especially if you were growing up in the United States, in suburbia in the 1960s or 70s or even the 80s. Right. The, the politics were in, often intrinsic to the kinds of things I was trying to get at. And and I think, I mean, I think you, you've done that effectively. So you're, you're not writing so much about popular music anymore. What are the things that, that are piquing your interest in, in 2020? Uh, and I mean, how, how long have you served as professor now? How long is, is your career been? <laughs> 
I, not to date you, feel free not to answer that. No, I mean, I, I, my first appointment as an academic professor came in 1975. Uh, I taught for a year at Purdue University before then going back to Illinois for 20 odd year, 20 years and then coming here. Uh, so I've been a professor for 45 years. Wow. I mean, that's a remarkable career. And is, is there, the, the pressure to publish still, I know when people are going from assistant professor to associate professor to full professor, whatever the track looks like, there's frequently pressure to publish. Do you still feel that pressure or is there joy in publishing? Well, to be honest with you, I, I hate writing. <laughs> now, okay. I know the first response people usually give me when I say that is, you've published an extraordinary amount. And my response is, first of all, well, I've been doing it for 45 years. <laughs> yeah. It's a long time. And if you look, you know, so I have five or six real books of my own, which isn't a great deal of publishing, you know, in terms of uh, an academic career in the humanities. Well, you're, you're, the second thing is you, I, I love lecturing and almost every essay I've published started out as a lecture. Mm. I love talking. I love teaching. You know, and I take the lectures I give, the notes I have, the responses people give me, and those become papers that I publish. Uh, is there still pressure to publish? Well, I suppose, you know, I, I certainly don't have to. Um, right. You know, it's not like they can do anything to me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've never, uh, I mean, when I started out saying I'm a teacher and an intellectual and not a scholar, I know I'm not quite sure how to put this, but I entered the academy as a place where I could do the work I wanted to do. I never felt pressure to publish. And now I realize it was probably there. Sure. But I thought, I, if I have something interesting to say and people like the lectures I give or a certain problem um, uh, appears, uh, and I think I have something useful to say about it that might open up possibilities for better understanding what's going on and therefore for changing it, then I publish it. Yeah, well, yeah. When I started, my interests have always been popular culture, politics, and philosophy. I was told at the beginning that those were three topics that I shouldn't write about. Right. Um, um, you know, there were philosophers who claimed that what I did was shit because it didn't look like what a professional philosopher did. You know, obviously, the stuff on music was considered trivial. And back then, it was still the case that people said, you know, academics shouldn't be political. I, I did what I loved. I did what I thought I had to do because I was committed to the fact that I believe ideas matter. And I believe that if you want to make the world better, you have to understand what's going on better than you did yesterday. I like that a lot, too. And, I mean, what, what you're espousing is a very punk rock ethos. <laughs> um you know, this, this has value. You may look at it and you may say, Hey, this is shit or this is trivial or this is unimportant. But hey, you know what? This matters to me. I'm going to pursue it. I don't care. Like I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to justify what I'm doing because this thing matters that I care about. 
And it reminds me of, I hosted a punk rock radio show in college, and they gave me an award one year. They, they would hand out just these like little cutesy poo awards to all the DJs. And mine was too punk rock for punk rock. And so I used to bitch about uh, the punk uniform, right? Yeah. So, you know, and, and I, I would even say things just as impossibly obnoxious, like, you know, I'm not a sheep to a smaller flock, man, like that kind of thing, right? <laughs> and one of the things I do on this show, because when I started this show, there weren't very many business-focused podcasts. And the way the show started was I was curious about what people did, how they did it, how they got there, what made them successful. I was just endlessly fascinated by the multitude of ways that people can make money in this culture. And so when I was interviewed in the Denver Post about it, they referred to me as the rare business-focused podcast. And I thought, okay, that's odd. I didn't, I didn't even realize that what I was doing was kind of an outlier. And I think in a lot of ways... When you are in that position and maybe you don't realize it, you're doing good work because you're going to push the boundaries of whatever it is you're doing in directions that they probably need to be pushed. And anytime you can kind of kick an institution in its teeth when, when it needs to be, that's important. Well, I, I mean, I agree. Punk rock. I, mean, I was a big fan of punk rock. I was probably by then a bit too old to be thought of as a punk, but. Uh, yeah. Hey man, don't no two punk rock for punk rock. You got to... <laughs> um, the best show I ever saw was the Clash, the Gang of Four, and the Au Pairs. Holy shit! Playing live in London. My God, where was it? It was uh, uh, South London. I'm just blanking because I'm old. I forget, but it was uh, in one of the bad. Neighborhoods of South London. Right. An incredible show. That sounds outrageous. But, you know, one of the reasons I was attracted to cultural studies when I first happened into, almost by accident, the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies was that it was clearly, whether intentionally or not, and I mean, I think to a large extent and intentionally, kind of violating all the rules of the academy. It said, look, being an academic is not the same as being a political intellectual or being a popular intellectual. And if what we want to do, what I wanted to do, was to be a political intellectual who might speak beyond the academy and not be, that's why I say I'm not a scholar, I, you know, although my writing is probably often too dense and esoteric or popular audience, I don't think of myself as writing for an academic audience. I think of myself as trying to develop ideas that actually engage the world in ways that the academy doesn't allow. You know, it's it's too interdisciplinary for the academy. Right. It's too contextual. You know, uh, people always ask me, you know, are you a Marxist? And I say, well, you know, sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not. The question isn't, you know, the question is, is Marxism useful for me to solve the problems that I've set for myself in this particular moment? People ask me, what's your theory? I say, I, I have a lot of theories. And again, you know, the academy expects you to have a theory. Sure. I think, you know, what you do is you have a question. You ask a question, you know, uh, the re the my first turn away from popular music studies, you know, that article that you cited 
Another Boring Day in Paradise. That was supposed to be the precursor to a book, mm. which was to be called Another Boring Day in Paradise. A line from Elvis Costello, yeah, you know, who said about American audiences, you're living in paradise and you're bored. <laughs> but then the elect Ronald Reagan's election happened. And there were all sorts of interesting, complex tensions between the Reagan campaign and rock and roll, both in terms of the, the Parents Music Resource Center, which brought labels to rock, to music record albums. Uh, and in terms of Tipper, Tipper Gore too, right? Tipper Gore. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of Reagan's campaign manager, who had a rock and roll band. Right. Uh, and I thought this is very interesting. How do we explain how we got from the sixties and rock and roll as a kind of sign of oppositional community to the late seventies and eighties when rock and roll now is being used, taken up, expressed in this new emerging conservative hegemony. And I followed that. You know, that the rise of that conservative hegemony. So, mm. you know, I had a book about Reagan. I had a book about the rise of Bush Jr. Um, you know, I have a, had a book about the rise of Trump now. That's become my passion now. I'm trying to understand how we got from the sixties because I think we're still living out the repercussions of the 1960s. Yeah. How did we come to the kind of politics that we have today? In in what way are we, because I've heard that before, but I'm interested in your thoughts on expanding upon that, how we're living the, the consequences of the 1960s. Well, you know, I mean, in, in a number of ways, one of which is many of the political problems that have to be addressed today, you know, race, gender, sexuality, <clears throat> environment, were made into popular political struggles in the 1960s. Mm. I think we didn't know it at the time, but it's also the case that the 1960s was the occasion for the rise, the beginnings of the new conservatism that gave rise to Reagan and subsequent developments. It, it's also the case, you know, it was the moment where popular culture became such a dominant force in our society mm. that in, in a way, you know, partly, you know, I, I always link Trump back, whatever my feelings about Trump are, and you can probably imagine. He's also learned the lessons of popular culture and mass media. Right. I, Those I, lessons were grounded in the 60s. It was the yippies and various other groups that figured out how to use popular culture and the media as a political tool. And, you know, Saul Alinsky and these people. Right. Uh, it's also the beginning of the division of the country. You know, it was Richard Nixon, the silent majority, who divided the country into, I don't quite, you know, it keeps changing. But right. The liberal elite and the average person, which, you know, is a, an appeal Trump keeps repeating. Right. I, and, and it, I mean, even going back to George W. Bush with Karl Rove and his wedge issues. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, it, and it was obviously Nixon who figured out a way uh, and in the 60s to mobilize racism in new ways. It's, it's not that racism is new or was new, but 
figured out ways to use it uh, in particular ways. So I, I think it's, it's not that we are completely determined by the 60s, but we're still playing out some of the politics and contradictions and tensions and strategies. And it's also the case, you know, one of my great interests and one of the, the things about cultural studies that I think sets it apart from others is that while I want to talk about the rise to power of various conservative alliances, different ones in Reagan and Bush and Trump now, I also want to talk about the failure of the left. Right. This is not only the rise of the right. It's about the failure of the left to actually do anything about it. And and one of the questions I want to ask is, well, what was it about the 60s that was successful, but that also meant that that success was not carried forth right. in ways that might have changed the the trajectories of politics in this country? I think your point is well taken because, especially today, I think there's a sense when you look at the, the political left in America – there's a sense of fecklessness when you, you watch the actions. Modern conservatism seems to be unafraid to say anything, and right. they end up establishing the playing field, whereas the left feels the need to qualify every statement. And and instead of saying what needs to be said, they're, they're constantly retreating and almost always leading with their chin, looking to negotiate with people who have no interest in negotiating with them at all. And you go, why? 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 Like, it doesn't make sense to me that – and I'm not advocating for sort of a zero-sum game or, you know, mutually assured destruction here. But, you know, lifting some of the successful tactics of modern conservatism seems like it would benefit the opposition party pretty extensively. Well, you, you know, we certainly – I don't want to say we should um, act the way that conservatives are now reactionary. Oh, no, certainly not. Are, but they are doing – they do think strategically. They do have a better ability. Now, Trump has undone this, and I'm, we're still trying to understand what's going on now with Trump. But they have traditionally had a better ability than the left to create what cultural studies often calls a unity and difference. Hmm. That, that is, I mean, actually, I often prefer reading conservative magazines the left-wing magazines, because conservative magazines actually have more debate and disagreement than okay. the left. The left is predictable, and the debates are rare, and when they happen, they're very predictable. Hmm. You know, is this about economics or is it about social justice? Is social justice movements dividing the left? You know, the left is a very fragmented, fractured thing, which has not been able to create a sense of unity. That's one of the things I think the 60s did, mm. was it, it was a movement to movements. It had enormous diversity. It didn't demand that everyone had to agree, had to have the same style. It had no uniformity about it, but it did have a kind of common culture. That's partly what the music did. And it did have a kind of common vision of the direction it wanted to move in. We didn't all agree with each other about the details, 
about which priorities mattered, about how to go about doing it. But we understood that they were, we were a part of a common movement and we didn't spend all that much time attacking each other. I think the left has lost that. Some of that. I, I mean, I think some of it still goes on, but I think it has lost some of it. I, I'd be inclined to agree with you. And if you look at the election of 2016, how quickly conservatives fell in line when they realized Trump was going to be the nominee right. because they realized if they were fractured, then they were going to lose entirely. And you compare right. that against the competing factions supporting Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And many of the Bernie Sanders folks did not show up to vote for Hillary Clinton. Right. As a result, you now have Trump as your president. Well, not sure as a result, but certainly one of the contributing Certain, things. Right. I, I, I think I'm oversimplifying, and, but right. Uh, and, you know, I, another lesson of cultural studies is simplifying it is not what we need to do. Right. And I think the left, the, the left is actually, and I use that term loosely now, but the left is actually quite suspicious of ordinary people. And and I think that's part of the reason why, to go back to the earlier thing I said, I think it's partly why they mount such terrible political campaigns, is because they actually are suspicious of popular culture and of the people who embrace popular culture. The right has always understood, A, that culture matters, and that, B, if you're going to speak to people, you have to speak to them in ways they understand. Right. Now, that often means speaking in simpler terms than you might speak when you are talking to your strategists and others. Right. right. But the right, I mean, again, before Trump, because I think we're still trying to figure this out, the right had a very sophisticated understanding of American society, American politics, and American culture. And they used it, and they developed strategies, you know, when, when William Buckley refused to support Barry Goldwater because he said we haven't done the work either of understanding the context or figuring out how to communicate with the people, that was brilliant cultural studies. It was. Right? Or at least, you know, a, an insight that cultural studies would share. Well, and, 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 think, and fascinating no matter what where you're coming from, I think. Yes, right. I remember... A funny story, when I did publish my book, which ended up being called We Gotta Get Out of This Place, <laughs> which is the book I published that was supposed to be called Another Boring Day in Paradise, right. because Reagan got elected. I got a call from my publisher. She said that they just sold a whole bunch of books, you know, a significant number of books to one university, which, you know, for a young, young academic, Young professor, that, that was great news. My God, I was going to get some money. Certainly. <laughs> um, and then she told me that they were sold to a Christian conservative college. And I thought, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> and I, I called Stuart Hall and I said, what have I done? And he said, well, you don't know what they're doing with your book. They may be constructing you as the devil. And using you as evidence of the horrors of, of, you know, the liberal left. Or they may be thinking, this guy's got some good insights and we can learn something from this that we can take forward in a different direction. Well, I mean, it reminds me, I mentioned to you that book, The Blueprint, how, yes. how Democrats rose in Colorado. 
I have a friend who is a Republican political operative who makes all of his campaign staffers read that book. It's it's not only it, he's not looking, you know, it's like, well, these these guys didn't play fair or whatever. This is how you run an effective political campaign. You know, understanding the principles in this book uh, are useful w- without sort of passing judgment. And that's one thing that bothers me about culture in 2020 is it's so easy to get inside your own echo chamber and not be exposed to voices that challenge you. And so I was struck by you saying you enjoying reading conservative magazines often more than liberal magazines. And I had an old blog where I wrote, I had in one hand, an edition of, I want to say, National Review or maybe the Weekly Standard. Um, which one is Bill Crystal's uh, Weekly Standard? And in the other hand, I had Rolling Stone that had an article featuring Matt, you know, by Matt Taibbi. And in this hand, I had one saying that Obama was going to be the absolute worst president and be essentially the devil incarnate. In this hand, I had an article saying that John McCain was the worst person on earth and essentially the devil incarnate. And I thought, you know, this is fascinating because neither of these things is true, I don't think. Yet, I'm happy to have read them both. And it reminds me of why every good communication studies program has a debate class because until you can successfully either argue or at least understand the opposition or the other side, you have nothing. And so I, what you said really resonated with me in that regard. I think there are, you know, there are two models for oversimplification because I don't believe they're in binaries, but there are two basic models of education and knowledge. One says knowledge is an accumulation of certainties. Now, you can accept that what's certain today may not be certain in 10 years, but this is what we are certain of today. It it could be moral certainties. It can be political certainties. It can be empirical certainties. It doesn't matter. I'm not a big fan of certainty. Uh, Anyone who is certain of what they think they believe and know, scares me. Me too. Because the other side says knowledge is a product of conversation. Knowledge is an ongoing argument in which I can say this is what I think today and, you know, I can defend it as well, to the best of my ability. But at the end, I'm going to say, but I could be wrong. And now I'd like to hear you tell me why I'm wrong. Yeah. And that's the ongoing conversation. That's what pragmatism argues. And I think at its best, that's what certain kinds of Marxisms argued, Gramsci. I think it is what cultural studies believes in. You know, certainty is the enemy, for me, of intellectual work and the enemy of politics. When you have certainty, that really dead ends intellectual curiosity. And when, when you... Stop that when you say – it's so funny. My thesis advisor, who's currently the chair of the department at Colorado State, is a guy named Greg Dickinson. He said, I'm always sure. where – you know Greg? Um, he was the one who uh, turned me on to your work. So Greg in his class used to say – because we'd be studying you know, Plato or Aristotle or whoever. And you know, in – I want to say the Gorgias, you've got – Characters that step up and say, I've got the truth. Right. I've got the truth. And Socrates would say, well, 
have you thought of it this way? Have you thought of it this way? And he's basically, you know, eliminating sophistry. And that always stuck with me. And anytime I see people kind of walking around in matching t-shirts, uh, I get a little bit nervous because those are people with answers who want to tell me their version of the truth that I don't think uh, they're willing to either examine or challenge or even possibly subvert at any cost. Uh, you know, one of the things that disturbs me about the present moment, uh, obviously, this is a very disturbing moment. Certainly. Uh, to be in with multiple crises intersecting, uh, none of which I think we adequately understand. Agreed. You know, the COVID crisis, the economic crisis, the political crisis, the environmental crisis, uh, and now the the resurgence of uh, anti you know racist and uh, anti racist struggles and the rise of fascism. Now fascism, let's say you know reactionary conservatisms. Mm-hmm. with some fascist elements to it. This is an extraordinarily unique, I do believe this is a unique moment, at least for modern times, and an extraordinarily complicated and contradictory moment. The country is not divided into two camps on any of these issues. There are lots of different perspectives on each of those issues and then how they are articulated together and and, yeah. and not it, unreasonable. Becomes, and not unreasonable. Right. Becomes extraordinarily complicated. So I'm amazed at how many left intellectuals have issued their, whatever they are, manifestos, statements. People whose work I respect, some of them I respect, <laughs> others not so much. But, you know, how, how could you, before the current demonstrations, how could you claim that you have an understanding of this pandemic. Well, what you're really claiming is, you know, I've been right all along. You know, this is crisis capitalism, and I've been telling you for decades about crisis capitalism, so now we can see it. Or this is racism, and I've been telling you for decades. I knew the answer yesterday, (laughs) and now I'm telling it to you again today. Then you haven't told me anything useful or interesting. Because I knew this yesterday. <laughs> I couldn't figure it out then. And now it's gotten more complicated and I still can't figure it out. So intellectual work takes time. This is the, this is the great dilemma, I think. Edward Said used to say this a great deal. Remind his students that the temporality of thinking is different from the temporality of media and the temporality of politics. Those are three different temporalities. And we do ourselves a disservice if we collapse those differences. Mm. Yes, you know, the media call upon me and say, oh, give us a statement. And I say, well, give me a week to do the research. So at least, you know, I, I know more than I do now. And maybe I'll have something interesting to say. People demand that you stand up and make a statement. And I want to know on on what basis, what kind of contribution to the conversation are you making that moves the conversation forward, that gives us a better understanding of the forces at work, therefore, presumably, hopefully, a better sense of what the possibilities are. I I think you're absolutely dead on. And I I think one of 
the contributing factors to that lack of time is a news cycle that never, ever stops. Yeah. And never stops consuming. And that to me, as, as a staunch defender at times of the media, the media is imperfect. I think the never ending news cycle is not doing good things for virtually any aspect of our society. I agree. And, and, you know, social media is obviously not doing any much good either. I mean, it, like everything, it has good consequences and bad consequences. But we haven't, and I say we, meaning intellectuals, progressive intellectuals, we haven't stopped to say, how are we going to respond to this intellectually? Not allow ourselves to be overdetermined by the demands of media or the demands of politics. I want to say, let's think about this. I mean, you know, I, I am get myself in trouble, maybe. I mean, obviously, I understand and support and sympathize, et cetera, et cetera, with the protest today. And in some sense, it's always nice to see the energy of protest. And then I want to remind my friends and others, this isn't the first time this has happened. We've had major protests, many of which turned into riots, in the past over the police brutality against black people. But if you don't have an analysis of why this keeps happening, and if you don't have a sense of the complexity of the relations, and a sense of what you might do, and a sense of the interconnectedness of the economic, and the cultural, and the political, and the social, and how they constitute sometimes continuous forces like the continuing reappearance of racism in different forms. It's not the same racism, but it's racisms. If we don't allow ourselves to have a better sense of how this is working so that we can have a better sense of what it would mean to change it, why do you expect that, you know, these protests are going to have any different effect than the last protests 10 years ago did where people said, oh, mea culpa, the police are racist. We're going to put them through, you know, anti-racist training. Yeah, sensitivity training or whatever. Yeah, you know, and really? You think that's, you, you think this is a psychological problem? No, no, we know it's not psychological. We know it's systemic. Aha. So what's systemic about it? Tell me how this is systemic. Well, America's racist, or these are lower middle class people who are racist. I mean, those aren't analyses. Those aren't the kind of things that intellectuals need to be doing today. We need to be quiet and get some empirical evidence, get some data, whatever you want to call it, begin to think through some of what's going on, to think through it historically to think through it contextually or conjuncturally. And I know that's frustrating. And I know that people say, oh, we don't have time. You know, urgency is not a friend of intellectual life. Right. And it seems to me we give up something of our political responsibility by giving into urgency. And I think that's one of the failures. You know, it's not coincidental that the right set up all these think tanks after the 60s where they develop plans thinking 20, 30, 40 years. 
I, I remember, uh, you can stop me. <laughs> Keep going, you're good. I, I remember hearing a lecture by William Buckley, you know, the founder of the National Review and, and probably uh, one of the leading intellectuals of the new conservatives in the 70s and 80s. And he gave a lecture about abortion. And he said, and it, you know, the audience was, as far as I could tell, all mostly, no, all anti-abortion, except for a few. I, I was there because I wanted to try to understand the conservative movement. And then, therefore, I had to go to their meetings, read their journals, listen to them. And Buckley said something really interesting. He said, it is terrible that our country is killing innocent people, their construction of abortion, and we will stop it. But if you think we're going to stop it tomorrow, then you should leave now. And if you think we're going to stop it next year or in the next election, you should leave now because it will take us 30, 40, whatever it takes, but we will stop it. And now... You know, they're that close to stopping it because the Supreme Court, given the right opportunity, will likely overturn Roe v. Wade. Think about that. Think about strategizing over the course of half a century. It's, I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, as much as I disagreed with Buckley and as, you know, given his politics and his racism and various other things, nevertheless, I admired his understanding that this is how intellectual politics works. Right. I, I would say what you're saying is related to something I think it was Aristotle that said it's an enlightened society where a man plants a tree under which he will uh, the shade of which he will never sit. Sure. William F. Buckley is dead. Yeah. And has been dead for a bit here. Yet this continues, and if, if you think about that blueprint and that strategy, you're right. That is remarkable foresight, and that is remarkable dedication to a cause that I, I think the argument that you're making is perhaps the right has gotten a little better at this than the left. Well, I, you know, I think the right has gotten a lot better, although, again, I, I'm not sure about Trumpism. No, uh, no, I mean, that's that's the, been like the, a grenade. The takeover. That's, the, you know, I mean, Trump is not a conservative. No. He feeds various conservative groups certain things that they have wanted. Uh, he is pro-capitalist, but of course there are a lot of Democrats who are pro-capitalist too. Certainly. He is what I would call a reactionary. And by the standards of conservatism, you know, set by people like Russell Kirk, good, and, you know, many of the leading conservatives from the 70s, 80s, 90s, even into the 2000s, people like George Will and others have renounced Trump. And there are many conservatives who are saying, this is not what conservatism is. This is, you know, this is something very different. What Trump has done and what its effects will be on realigning the political terrain, you know, I'm still trying to figure out. Well, and there's no way we could possibly know that now. But we can have a better understanding of what he is, what is going on. Agreed. Always limited. We can have a better understanding. You know, I mean, so for example, you know, I wrote a book after his election called Under the Cover of Chaos. My argument in that book is that chaos has become Trump's political weapon of choice. 
and I try to elaborate what that means, right? So that he is, much of what he does produces chaos, which he can then rail against and justifies the assertion of increasingly sovereign forms of power, which produces more chaos. (laughs) It, It is an extraordinary political transformation because politics is traditionally, since Aristotle, the imposition of order on chaos. Mm-hmm. Trump uses chaos as a political field. And I don't think we've come to terms with what that means and how he does it. And, you know, a good example of that was his horrendous hike through the park to the church. Right. right? I mean, as an image of holding back the chaos which he himself is producing by holding it back. Right. right? Uh, it, it's it's a frighteningly undemocratic, I can't think of another word, it's a frighteningly undemocratic notion of uh, the polis. Uh, I, I would agree. I hate to cut this off. I know uh, you've got an appointment that you are uh, prepping for. This is the time on the show... When we do plugs, so if there's anything you'd like to plug, if you'd like to, where can people find your book? Where can people get in touch with you? Anything you want to plug at all, you're welcome to do it now. Um, the floor is yours. <laughs> well, you know, uh, what do I plug? I think people should, A, go online and find Stuart Hall videos. Oh, sure, yeah. I think, you know, if you want to understand how what it means to think in the present age, you know, Heidegger once, you know, problematic figure in intellectual history, but Heidegger once said something to the effect of the most thought-provoking thing about our thoughtless society is how little we think. And I think Stuart Hall is perhaps the best model uh, I know of, of what it would mean to think in the present moment. I, I think people... You need to stop thinking of the world in simple terms. Uh, the world is not divided into two camps. And here my friend Paul Gilroy has written beautifully about it. One of uh, my favorite oxymorons is uh, there are two types of people in the world. Right. The the types of people who believe there are two types of people in the world uh, and everyone right. else. Right. You know, the American polis, the global polis, is a lot more complicated than our binaries suggest, and a politics built on binaries is doomed to failure. The right uses those binaries strategically while they allow, and again, Trump has disrupted this, yeah, we need to embrace, we need to be willing to embrace some of the complexities of the world and think them through and give up our certainties. It's always nice. You want to read my book? available. It's called Under the Cover of Chaos, Trump and the Struggle for the American Right. I will. Uh, is that available Amazon, Barnes & Noble, I that kind of thing? Go to your local indie bookstore. There you go. Ask them to order it. Support your local indie bookstores whenever possible. Agreed. 100%. Well, Larry, I will tell you what. Um, this was a big thrill for me personally, just because your work was very important to my development and my thinking about the world. And so getting to talk with you and hear your thoughts about things going on currently. I, this this was a thrill. I appreciate your work. I appreciate what you do. And thank you for being a part of the show. 
You're welcome. Thank you for your kind words and for inviting me. All right. Continued success, Dr. Grossberg. And you too. And that'll do it for episode 255 of the John of All Trades podcast with Dr. Lawrence Grossberg. Larry, what a thrill. What a privilege. Thank you for coming on my show. It's a pleasure having you. Please continue to do great work. And if you want to support Larry, find his book. I will have links to everything on the companion blog piece. That's johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N of alltrades.us. You can also find it in the show notes, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or any of a billion other podcasts. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Pay some love to our sponsor, 4 Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, 4 Degrees can help you craft that strategy. Whether you're just building a website, reaching out through social media marketing, doing online advertising, or anything else online, candidate, campaign, good, service, product, nonprofit, whatever it is, Four Degrees can help you do that. They are winning awards. They are an exceptional team. And I'm proud to feature them as my sponsor. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Check me out on social. J-O-A-T pod is the handle. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews typically go up on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. I hope wherever you are, you are staying safe. You are staying healthy. You are staying sane. I adore you. Please take care of yourselves. Please take care of each other. I know that's a ripoff of Jerry Springer's old catchphrase. I don't care. I mean it. I can't wait to hear you back here again. And until I do, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.